Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing. A leadership race is underway in Alberta, not just to select the next leader of the United Conservative Party, but to select the next premier. A lot of people are raising their hands for that candidacy, including our guest today, Danielle Smith, someone who is very well known in Alberta and has trod what I think is a very interesting and what some people may say is a controversial path in Alberta politics. Smith worked in media and at think tanks early in her career, then became leader of the Wild Rose Party from 2009 to 2014, until, as leader, she crossed the floor to join the Alberta PC Party, then in government. After the PCs were out and the NDP came to power, Smith left politics and became a well-known radio host. But now she is re-entering the ring. What was wrong with Premier Jason Kenney's leadership? What needs to happen in Alberta next? And what's Danielle Smith going to do about it? She joins us now. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks so much for having me, Anthony. G- great to have you here. And, you know, I mentioned how you went on to do a radio show host uh, gig, of course, and I was pleased to join that program a few times. But what I didn't mention in the intro, and one thing I think is very cool is, uh, tell me about the restaurant you were running. <laughs> oh, it was, it's sort of a dream job. When I went through university, I put myself through by being a server. Well, first at a seafood restaurant called Cannery Row in, uh, in Calgary, and then uh, out in Vancouver at the Shark Club. And so w- my husband had a similar path. And so we always thought, gee, wouldn't it be fun to get back in that industry again? So there was an um, old railway dining car in High River. It was in a really sad state of repair. It had been brought here in 1989. It had initially been commissioned by the, by CN Rail as a passenger car. It was converted to a dining car to support Expo in Montreal. Retired in 1989, it was fixed up by some volunteers here. But after 30 years of wear and tear, it was uh, we were fearful. If someone didn't step in and save it, that it was headed for the junkyards. We stepped in, did a massive renovation, which is probably a topic for a whole other podcast. And then we've been running it ever since. So our, our specialty, if you ever happen to be in High River, is a, a Eggs Benedict. We do build your own. And I try Eggs Benedict everywhere I go. And I can say without a single tone of bias that ours is the best. So you, you'll have to come next time you're in Alberta. I love it. I love it. And not, not to romanticize things too much, but I always, I talk about the story. I write about too much of my columns on, on the Roman general Cincinnatus and how he was tending his farm as a private citizen. And then the, they came by and they said, we need you to lead us in war. And then he led them in war. He won the war. And then he said, well, okay, I'm going back to the farm. So I, I like the idea of you're at the restaurant and then you go, and now I'm going to become premier. I like that. You know, it's funny you should say that because maybe I've been so influenced by Ayn Rand, who, you, who as you may know, I feel like we're kind of living the end times of Ayn Rand when all the entrepreneurs of the world go on strike because of onerous government regulation. But there is one character, I think it's Hugh Acton, a pro- professor, who ends up going and, and retires. And his strike was to retire from his professorship and then go and, and make sandwiches at a diner. So maybe that's what stuck with me. I don't make the sandwiches when I'm there. My husband normally has me do the dishes. From time to time, he'll let me come out front, but we've got a strict rule. I'm not allowed to talk about politics, so I do end up doing dish duty a lot. Oh, okay, now normally my opening question, when I have a leadership candidate or running for mayor or whatever, I say, well, why are you, why are you running for office? But now I got to say, because you're saying we're, we're having a great time talking about the restaurant and you're saying it was kind of a dream to do all this and you're telling these anecdotes and you know, you're laughing about it and everything. What on earth are you thinking? You're going back into politics? 
You know, I was at the front line of uh, the ups and downs and the opening and closure and the restrictions and having frontline staff having to enforce them for the last couple of years. And so I've I've experienced firsthand what that uncertainty is like for a small business owner. And I've seen as well, talked to tons of customers and people about the, the damage that the last two years have caused. And I just feel like if there is going to be an outbreak of freedom anywhere in this country, it's going to be in Alberta. I was gravely disappointed in the um, in the last round of, of shutdowns and the demonization of those who've made the a different medical choice. Uh, they were called extremists and bigots and lunatics, and they're none of that. I mean, most of it is just moms and dads who are really worried about what we're creating for uh, for their kids as a future and really worried about their kids losing ground in education, really worried about the mental health of their children. And so I wanted to make sure I could be a voice for that group and try to properly represent them as we go into the next respiratory virus season. Um, and then there's also mm. the whole issue of autonomy. I mean, Justin Trudeau has trampled all over the Constitution. It's like we have operated without one for the last two years, but in particular, the invasion of provincial jurisdiction and the micromanaging of every single thing we do, it's enough as enough. If we don't reestablish a more constructive relationship with the rest of Canada, then it's it's not, it, we're going to be headed for some kind of constitutional reckoning. And I, I think we can be constructive in pushing Ottawa back in its lane. And those are the two things that I, that I thought was really important for me to get back in the, in the, in the, in the race All for, right, the, let's, for the leadership. Let's unpack both of those because I, like you, I want to relitigate uh, what happened the past two years. I want commissions, inquiries. I, I, well, I don't know if you want those, but I want those. And I'm saying that there were problems that we need to look at. I know a lot of people though say it's the summer. I want to party. I want to forget about the last two years. And I totally get that why people wouldn't want to. They want to leave it all behind them. But you, you dropped a little breadcrumb there. The next respiratory virus season. We're hearing one or two hints. Teresa Tam uh, here where I'm in Ontario, we're hearing it from some health leaders that, oh yeah, stuff's going to come back. People are going to have to do stuff. I don't know what it is. I don't know if they're saying lockdowns, mask mandates, something. Are you saying that you want to get back into politics, not just to talk about what happened, but you believe it may happen again and you want to stop it? I'm certain that there will be voices that are calling for more restrictions and more lockdowns. And we need to get a balanced view of what worked and what didn't. Because I, I, it is my contention that lockdowns were not effective. If you look at the most lockdown jurisdictions on the planet, Belgium, Italy, New York, Quebec, they had some of the worst death rates. I would put it to you that the the provinces and, and regions that did the best uh, did the best at protecting their most vulnerable citizens. And those were the ones who were in long-term care with multiple pre-existing conditions. And Alberta did a pretty good job of that. So did British Columbia. So if that's the key to making sure that we protect our citizens, that's what we need to do. We need to focus on making sure that those who are most vulnerable get their uh, regular shots so that they have the ability to protect themselves with a new variant so that they, uh, we have to make sure that we're testing um, to make sure that people with fever are not going into long-term care facilities. If people do get diagnosed and sick with COVID or influenza, that we have some early treatment to prevent them from being hospitalized. Those are the kind of things that would be effective measures. When we began this, we didn't know much about this virus, fair enough. But by the time we got into July and August, 
that was when we should have taken a different a different tack. And the fact that that we have uh, doctors so disappointing doctors and chief medical officers that are still trying to perpetuate this idea that everyone is equally at risk. It's creating unnecessary fear and is creating an unnecessary amount of public support for for measures that simply don't work and cause so much harm to our to our young people. We just can't let that happen again. It's interesting that Alberta did go into subsequent lockdowns because I credit Alberta and the Alberta Health Service with being, I think, the most open source with data. Uh, the writing I did on comorbidity work, uh, although Statistics Canada verified the Alberta figures did hold true nationally, but Alberta was the only one that released the info that told us that 75% of persons who died of COVID were struggling with not one, not two, but three or more underlying health conditions and, and things like obesity are not considered a health condition. So more serious things in there. And it's like, wow, that really, you know, that could have helped us do a better response to all of this. And, and I wonder, I mean, can you explain to me what went awry in Alberta and the UCP and the Kenny government such that that data maybe wasn't used in a more productive way? I, I strongly suspect that there's a lot of pressure that comes from uh, the federal level of government. I don't know that we've ever really? uh, we've ever admitted that, but when I you you don't see health jurisdictions locking walking in lockstep so uh, stridently as we did during this if it's not being directed from the office of the uh, of the public health officer at the federal level and I think that that's really what set the tone. I want to understand a so little Tam bit more. So Tam calling Dina Henshaw or Trudeau calling well, Kenny they, or I think they coordinate. No, I think it would have been through the through through Theresa Tam and the public health office um, because the it it seems to me because I was trying to understand where the uh, clampdown on doctors who wanted to treat their patients came from, and it does seem like there was some kind of safety protocol that was issued by the public health agency that then ended up spreading out through the public health agencies provincially and ended up dictating how our colleges started treating our frontline doctors and nurses and other health professionals. So this is part of the reason and why we need to establish an Alberta Sovereignty Act is the first thing that I said I would do if I get elected, because we need to chart our own course. Healthcare is a provincial level of responsibility. We have the right to be able to determine the best healthcare protocols and practices for our citizens. And I don't feel that the uh, the federal government made the, the right balance on this. I want to make sure that if Dr. Teresa Tam is saying that three jabs are going to be mandatory, that we have a, the opportunity to say, actually, no, we're not going to abide by that. If she says that uh, vaccination for children is going to be mandatory, we're going to say, no, we don't believe that we're going to do that. If she wants to start asking us to quarantine healthy citizens, we're going to say, no, we're not going to do that either. We don't. I don't want Alberta to be the enforcement arm of um, a federal agency that's kind of out of touch with uh, the the, um, the most recent data and out of touch with what it is that that is that is desired in our province. So those are, and I'm I, I don't think that that's an idle concern. That the federal government did not cancel their um, their travel restrictions. They suspended them. There's a, a reason that language is being used. Already, we've stopped doing COVID updates, and we've said that we're going to have an integrated approach to reporting on influenza and coronaviruses, the same way that we did the flu watch, which is you reset every year in, in August, you watch as it rises and as it falls, and you give, uh, give reporting of the case numbers. So we're going to start doing that. But already, I'm hearing the same usual suspects in the medical health profession 
saying, oh my goodness, we've got to be prepared for more lockdowns. So there, there is obviously some kind of pressure coming. I suspect it's, it's coming through the, uh, the federal uh, health agency. And we just want to make sure that we assert for Albertans that we're going to put our liberties first. We're going to put the health and, and mental health of our, of our young people first. We're going to make sure that we don't lock down and close down hospitals so that we can ensure we're diagnosing patients with cancer, making sure that we're managing chronic conditions. There is so much legacy problem we are going to have going forward and dealing with ongoing health issues because we didn't have the right balance. And we're not going to exacerbate that by making the same mistakes again this time around. We'll be back with more with Daniel Smith in just a moment. Danielle, you mentioned that Alberta Sovereignty Act. That'll be one of the first things that you do. I know you're talking about it when it comes to not enforcing, say, federally required mandates or quarantines. I know you also mentioned things like the carbon tax, but there have already been court challenges around that. And Alberta and Ontario and Saskatchewan lost those court challenges. What is the workability of an Alberta Sovereignty Act? How do you actually go about and say to the feds, "Uh uh-uh, not doing it? I haven't figured out how we get around the carbon tax yet, but I'm working on it. But here's a where I think it is more practical is if you look at the court decision or uh, opinion that came out of the Court of Appeal a few weeks ago on a C69. It's been called the No More Pipelines Bill, but r- what it really is, is the no more build anything in the natural resource sector anywhere in Alberta or the rest of the country without federal approval bill. And that's not how our constitution was designed. That's not what the Natural Resources Transfer Act was about. It's not what Peter Lougheed fought for when he got our exclusive right to develop our resources entrenched in the constitution, section 92A. What, what it's supposed to mean, the way our country's supposed to work, how our founders originally intended it, is that projects that are within provincial boundaries get provincial oversight and provincial approval. And the federal government has interfered every single step of the way. When you look at how different Quebec is treated, as I've often said, I don't think Quebec is sitting back cowering and worried the federal government is going to come in and kibosh their projects. It's vice versa. The federal government's sitting there worrying and cowering about Quebec. Completely. And when it, and I, I can give a few examples. So in the last number of years, for instance, um, asbestos was one, was one of the deadly products that internationally there was a, a ban on export. We, we, Quebec was allowed to continue developing and mining asbestos for decades after that. The, uh, there was a massive cement plant that was approved that has more emissions than Energy East would have, more emissions than Suncor would have, and it bypassed the usual environmental approvals. There, um, Montreal was, was dumping 2 billion gallons of raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River, and everyone went, oh, well, whatever. Meanwhile, here in Alberta, we've got Suncor that has promised to reach a net zero target by 2050. And Environment Minister Stephen Gobeau says, "Mm, I don't think I'm going to give you approval to expand that. Uh, Tech uh, Frontier Mine, they also wanted to develop their their mining operation. They canceled it because of federal interference. I met with the nuclear uh, representatives because there's the first uh, rollout of small modular nuclear reactors are likely to be in our oil sands here, uh, which would allow us to develop our oil sands with lower emissions. They were said, well, we probably won't be able to get approval until sometime in the 2030s because of this new bill 
Bill C-69, which prevents us from making decisions to adopt small modular reactors if they're more than 200 megawatts in power and heat being generated. Like the, when I look at this, I'm shaking my head thinking we are in a responsible environmental jurisdiction. We have our companies who want to be at the forefront of that. This is what the federal government says is a priority. They're constantly talking about a climate emergency, and yet they're standing in our way every step of the way in a way they absolutely would not do in Quebec. So we just want to be treated the same way as Quebec. We want to be treated the way the constitution has been, has been written and the way our founders intended it. And if they're not going to uh, leave us alone, we're just going to push them back in their lane and tell them to stay there. <laughs> and as I've said, we won't have a constitutional crisis if they just give us the respect that we deserve. And, and so we're going to, but to change the relationship, we're the ones who have to change. We're the ones who have to draw the line in the sand because it's not acceptable anymore. And that's what I'm hearing from Albertans. So that's, that's why we need to act and we need to act quickly. I want to talk about 2014, you leaving the Wildrose Party as leader crossing the floor, joining the PCs. It was eight years ago, but I think politics is a world where people like to hold a lot of grudges. And I know back then things people said, and some people still saying them now. Daniel Smith was a turncoat. The other T word, she was a traitor. Daniel Smith practically handed the win to Rachel Notley and the NDP because of doing that. What do you say to the voices who have continued to say that? There's no question that it was probably the worst political decision any politicians ever made. And we were both punished for it. I didn't win my nomination and Jim Prentice ended up losing the election. I think, I think both of us had come, I mean, he didn't cause the problems in Alberta. He just wanted to step in and fix them. And I felt the same way. And so I think we were premature in having a conversation about unity and how to work together. And we certainly went about doing it the wrong way. And both of us uh, received the, the punishment for that, and rightly so. But I, but I think when I look at where we're at now, I think we now see that the, the NDP are strong. Uh, they're unified. They are a single progressive voice. So there isn't a vote split. And if we split on the right, then we're going to end up seeing another another Rachel Notley government. So when I was looking at the lay of the land, we, we were seeing so many different parties split off because of the issues I was talking about here. We have Paul Hinman's gone back to the Wild Rose Independence Party. We had two MLAs who are talking about starting their own parties after they got kicked out of the caucus. We have a Buffalo project that and a Buffalo party that got all of the signatures to run candidates. There's a group called the Alberta Prosperity Project that is thinking of running candidates for independence. And when I looked at the lay of that land, I thought, my goodness, if we do not address autonomy, address issues of liberty, we're going to see this, this, uh, this conservative libertarian movement split apart. And it will mean that Rachel Notley will win next time. So I thought I could be uh, an agent of unity, having been somebody who tried to, to bring unity to the party and failed. I was cheering Jason Kenney and Brian Jean along as they, as they did it the right way. And I, I don't want to see this party split apart. I think it's part of the reason Brian Jean jumped back in again. He, he also doesn't want to see, after all the hard work he put in, this party split apart. So those, I hope people see that, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be constructive on this. I didn't run away when I had my political failure. I went on the air and took my lumps and some days were pretty rough in those first three months, I can tell you that. But I think people understand that I've always put Alberta first and I'm going to continue to have a voice advocating for good policy one way or the other. And this just seems like the best time for me to, to make my voice heard and to, to try to be that constructive leader who can bring this party uh, together, but also change the relationship with the rest of the country.
As Wild Rose leader, you you definitely described yourself as libertarian, big free speech advocate, but there were also people in the party who were more social conservative. I know you've said the fit wasn't always that great. I always valued your commitment to free speech. I think people roll their eyes when candidates get fired for, oh, here's something they put on Facebook when they were 14. It's like, oh my God, we just had an election in Ontario and some of the stuff was just ridiculous. It's like, really, who cares? This is why no one runs for office. You had a few incidents back during, well, it's 10 years ago now, uh, that some people would say is one of the reasons why you did not become premier back then in 2012, when you guys were really high in the polls with the Wild Rose, uh, people who were saying some some homophobic things, some candidates, uh, very sort of aggressive social remarks. And you said, look, I'm not in the business of, you know, these aren't my views, it's not the party's views, but I'm not axing people uh, for these comments. And then later you said, maybe we should reevaluate that policy. Now, when we talk about cancel culture more and more now, I am not defending or delving into the deep of what these candidates even said, how do you think about those issues now? How would you confront those sorts of issues as UCP leader? It, it's inter- There's a lot of learning that I think a lot of conservative parties have had based on our loss in, in 2012 and, and, uh, and, and myself also. And I've, I've taken a cue from how other leaders subsequently have, have dealt with controversial candidates. As uh, I mean, I believe in free speech, free expression, free advocacy. I, I, I don't, I don't, believe the cancel culture is um it's not sustainable we're not it's not good for society to have people feel like their voice can't be heard because then it just pushes voices to the fringes and we become more polarized so i want to, to do what i can to, to reverse that so we can have a more constructive conversation about not sustainable issues. is a good way to put it because soon there's going to be no one left <laughs> look through all Isn't of our facebook true? posts or we'll all be going to you know the podcast that we agree with and not hearing anything from an alternative perspective and i don't think yeah, that's so unifying true. but here's what I, what I would observe as well. All that being said, politics is a team sport. And what and we're not like America. In America, you can be a leader and run independently. And it doesn't matter who's running with you because you can get elected without the team being behind you. And so that's why I think that there's um, a lot more tolerance for, for a range of views in the, in the US. But in Canada, one person can tear down the entire team and prevent you from being able to win. So I think the balance that we saw, and I think it was... Um, and uh, it was uh, Aaron O'Toole who did this as well as Jason Kenney, is that the if you have a candidate who's controversial or being destructive, um, you have to put it to the, the whole team. Do you want this person to sit with you? So if I could do this it over again and that candidate made the statements they did, I probably would call an emergency meeting of our candidates and just hear everybody out and then have a vote. If this person stays on the ballot and wins, Will they sit with caucus? Yes or no? Because I think in that situation, if I had been more responsive and allowed my candidates and my team to weigh in, I suspect that that's how it would have been resolved. And so I I think that that's the right balance because I I do want to make sure that the candidates that get elected... Uh, and you don't want to interfere too much as a leader in what's going on at the local constituency association. But I think the balance is make sure you send us a good candidate <laughs> that's going to be a good member of the team. Otherwise, the team is not going to be able to support them. That's, I think, probably the way you you, uh, you try to deal with those issues. Not everybody's a great candidate for office. And I think people have to be a little self-reflective. If they feel so stridently about one or two issues, maybe advocacy is their place. Maybe having a podcast is their place, but you have to be able to ensure that once you get elected, you're not going to tear the team down and you're going to represent all your constituents. I think that's maybe the the nuance that, uh, that has happened over the last 10 years as I've watched other leaders deal with these issues in a different way. 
Danielle, you referenced some emerging splinter groups in Alberta, or at least splinter sentiments when it comes to politics. So perhaps the party name United Conservative Party is, at least in the interim, a bit of a misnomer. What is the UCP? What is the party that you are now vying to lead? You know, it's funny because Jason Kenney, I'd known for a very long time, and I I thought he was going to be a three-term premier as beloved as Ralph Klein, and that I was going to stay on radio for 10 years. And he had such a good start. His, His first year was really good. And the work that he has done on representing Alberta and our energy sector, not only to the rest of the country, but also internationally, has been stellar. He's done a terrific job of attracting new investment into Alberta and in embracing this net zero future with not only the oil sands project saying they're going to be net zero, but we also have a petrochemical plant, Dow Chemical, that's going to be net zero. We've got a hydrogen economy building up with air products that's going to be net zero. We've got major international investment coming in on the tech sector. So all of that I want to preserve and celebrate. I I want to make sure that people understand that the, the core of what the UCP was about still has a great deal of support. But the splinters that happened occurred because of the approach on COVID. And I think the premier was doing a reasonably good job up until this last round. He had he had said we weren't going to have vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, forced vaccination. And in point of fact, we did. We had vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. People were getting fired from their public sector jobs for not being vaccinated. And I think that was a fundamental breaking point with a portion of the membership, which is why I've committed. We won't do that again. And then the other issue was we got a very clear mandate from the people that they wanted to end equalization. And unfortunately, the premier, maybe because of the circumstances he was in, having to work collaboratively with the federal government, uh, he didn't act on that. And so I think that was the other reason why people said, well, gee, we've done, we've been talking about this for 20 years. You just got a mandate uh, from the people in a referendum. You just did a broad-based consultation on a fair deal. Um, and these are the things we want you to act on. So I would say that as we start acting on those, we'll bring the that, that part of the coalition back in. So I'm not I'm not as concerned about the long-term prospects for unity. And I think it's more important than ever because the uh, the progressive vote under Rachel Notley and the NDP is very strong. And we can't take that for granted. We have to stay united. And so I think that a leadership process can be very, very healthy that way. We've got a broad spectrum of candidates running. I have a great admiration for everyone who's in the race. I hope it can be a little more constructive than what we're seeing at the federal level, which is getting a little bit nasty between candidates. But if we can if we can do all of that, I have no doubt that the, the party will be unified at the end of the process. Danielle, I was dismayed when I learned that you were leaving your radio program back a year and a half ago, January 2021. I thought you were great on air, and I was I was so pleased that you were uh, standing up against the COVID crazies. You explained your rationale in a guest op at nationalpost.com. I'm leaving Twitter and radio because I've had enough of the mob. Tell me a bit about that, and then also reconcile it with the fact that I think you're jumping two feet first into the mob again right now. A couple of things is um, I've noticed you know, what's been so encouraging over the last year and a half since I've left radio has been to see all of the robust conversation happening in the alternative media. It's funny, I used to take the view when I was on mainstream media was, okay, I'll watch the alternative and if something jumps over into the mainstream, I'll know that that's been validated and so I'll be able to report on that. I'm right. actually finding the reverse now. I'm finding that... Um, I read something in the mainstream media 
And I go to the alternative media to see if it's being reported the same way. So I think there's been a, a fundamental shift. I, I, I always felt like the mainstream media was supposed to be that voice of being fair and accurate and balanced. And sadly, they, they weren't doing that in the last couple of years. So the, the mob that I'm referring to uh, goes to, it's funny because you, you probably remember this too. I got involved in radio in, uh, in uh, uh, newspapers back in the 90s. And we always had a letters page and the letters were always very heavily curated and they were edited. And so we, we had the general public say their piece, but it wasn't destructive. Same thing with... Um, broadcast standards council like you had to write a letter if you were angry at something you saw in the air and it would be dealt with that way now with a print of a button you can have thousands of people on twitter get outraged about one sentence one radio host says in one program and it can result in the loss of their reputation and the loss of their career you've got also a lot of i think there's a a lot of skittishness on the part of advertisers that they're terrified that they're going to have boycott campaigns against them. And so any slight whiff of controversy and they're calling the bosses saying, you got to rein that host in. And that's not what talk radio is supposed to be. And it's not what the opinion pages of newspapers are supposed to be. So I think the only place we're actually getting the robust debate that we truly need is in some of those alternative uh, sources, podcasts like yours, um, Western Standard, Rebel Media and True North on the right, Canada Lens and the Tai and the Observer on the left. And I'm hoping that that creates the environment that I always felt the media should do. The media is such an important part of our democracy. We call them the fourth estate for a reason. They're not supposed to just be a propaganda arm of government. They're really supposed to be holding our institutions to account. And I had a, I had a bit of a despair a year and a half ago that that wasn't happening. feel far, far much more enthusiasm <laughs> towards the broader view of media these days because I'm seeing all of those alternative voices. And it, it gives me hope that we're actually going to return to some kind of fairness and accuracy and balance. It was nice Netflix didn't cancel those comedy specials. You know, the, 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 the recent ones that they were angry about. I thought that was a good victory. <laughs> that to me demonstrates, I mean, it's hard because I understand, especially in the cultural institutions, that they are very progressive and very woke. But uh, I, I read the statement that Netflix said, said, look, like we're in the entertainment business. And if you're not able to watch something without having a meltdown, maybe this isn't the place for you. So that that shows a lot of leadership. And I do hope that that others take that to heart, that you don't have to agree with everything you hear. But, but part of our, our practice in our Western liberal democracies is that we do allow that robust exchange of ideas. It's the only way we learn. It's the only way we find common ground. And it's the only way that I think we, we end up eliminating the polarization we have in society. And yet, Danielle, the things you're saying in terms of absolute defiance against people pushing for COVID stuff that you anticipate – uh, coming up in respiratory virus season, Alberta Sovereignty Act, which uh, as long as Trudeau is still prime minister, there's going to be pushback to that. That is going to create quite a maelstrom. How will you fight that battle, those battles? As you know, I know how to take a punch and I know how to give a punch. And I, the way I'm looking at this now is our biggest battle in Alberta to protect my people and to protect our ability to generate wealth and be prosperous and to be the place that we are is to make sure that Ottawa stays uh, out of our lane, stays in its stays in its own areas of jurisdiction. So I'm I am quite happy to have that fight. I think it's the right fight to have, and it doesn't you know it doesn't it doesn't need to be um, combative. It it really doesn't. I mean if they 
gave us the same respect and treatment as Quebec, I think we would have a perfectly great relationship. But uh, I feel like they are not seeing everything that we're doing in Alberta. I think there's an ideology that is uh, in in represented among people like Stephen Gilbeau, the environment minister, who is so extreme in his environmental views. We've been told this story for the last 10 years that the entire planet was going to switch over to wind and solar and battery power. I think that got blown under the water with Michael Moore's documentary, Planet of the Humans, and The Big Green Lies, which is another documentary where it became quite clear that wind and solar use a lot of fossil fuels in their development. Steel uses fossil fuels. Cement uses fossil fuels. The transportation to get all of those wind turbines to site use fossil fuels. Uh, the crystalline silicon uses coal to, to be able to develop the solar panels. So we have to have a broad perspective on what it is, what the environmental impact is of each of the different types of energy that we use. And Alberta is on this track of being net zero in all those products, net zero in steel, net zero in cement, net zero in transportation fuels as we switch to hydrogen, net zero by being able to capture and bury CO2 from our, from our, from our, our various um, development of hydrocarbons. There's the ability for us to develop bitumen to asphalt, which we're all going to need because we're all going to have have to have roads to drive on, whether we're driving a combustion engine vehicle or a net zero vehicle. We have 6,000 different construction materials and products that are made out of uh, our conventional hydrocarbon fuels. So there is a different way to achieve the same ends. And that's what I've been promoting is that we can be in sync on me meeting our international commitments, but the way we meet them in Alberta is going to be very different than the way we meet them in Quebec, which has the benefit of cheap hydropower that they get from a long-term deal they signed on Churchill Falls. So that that's the perspective that I think uh, Ottawa's missing. And if they need someone to uh, educate them directly, I'm just the person to do it. I've been talking about this now for six or seven years, and I'm prepared to, to have that fight. Danielle, if, if you don't win the leadership, are you still going to run as an MLA regardless? Yes, I actually um, got asked if I would run locally as an MLA. That's where I began. And then when I, I launched, I let people know that if the bigger job got became open, I would I would run for that as well. So I intend to 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 run either way. And as I said, I have great respect for the the people who have put their name forward. I'd be happy serving under any of them. Daniel Smith, thanks so much for stopping by. My pleasure. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.